The year is 1973, and a sea change is underway in the political and social lives of Americans as the nation officially ends its long and controversial involvement in the Vietnam War with the signing of the Paris Peace Accords. The Supreme Court legalizes abortion with its Roe v. Wade decision, and the Watergate hearings begin, setting the stage for the eventual resignation of President Richard Nixon. And in that momentous year of 1973, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Jason Miller's That Championship Season, a drama about friendship, betrayal, and the decline of American exceptionalism. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. 1973 might have been a volatile year for many Americans, but it was a banner year for Jason Miller. After years of scrambling to make ends meet as an actor and playwright, his play scooped up just about every prize in sight, and Miller himself earned an Oscar nomination for his role as Father Damien Karras, the troubled title character in the movie The Exorcist. But, like the one-time champions in his play, Miller would never reach such heights again. John Anthony Miller, Jr. was born on April 22, 1939, in Queens, New York, to Claire Miller, a schoolteacher, and her husband, John Anthony Miller, Sr., who worked as an electrician. The family moved to Scranton, Pennsylvania the next year, and Miller grew up attending the local Catholic schools that educated the children of the Irish, Polish, and other first- and second-generation immigrants who worked in the area's coal mining industry. Miller went on to get a degree in English and philosophy from the Jesuit-run University of Scranton, and he began writing plays there. He later studied speech and drama at Catholic University in Washington, D.C., but he dropped out before he got his master's degree. However, while he was at the school, he met his first wife, Linda Gleason, the daughter of the actor and comedian Jackie Gleason. They married in 1963 and would eventually have three children, including the actor Jason Patrick. The young couple moved to New York City, where Miller had long fantasized about living. He worked day jobs as a truck driver, a waiter, and a welfare investigator as he continued writing his plays and auditioning for and occasionally getting small parts in plays that others had written. But by 1970, only one of his plays, Nobody Hears a Broken Drum, had been produced. Broken Drum was about the Molly Maguires, the 19th century radicals who challenged the Pennsylvania coal mine owners. It ran for just six performances at a small theater on East 4th Street. And with the exception of a few minor roles at the public theater, Miller's acting career in the city wasn't thriving either. 
he was performing as one of the card players in a production of Neil Simon's The Odd Couple in Fort Worth, Texas, when he began to work on that championship season. The Molly Maguire's play had called for 20 actors, and so Miller thought he might have better luck with a smaller cast and a single unit set. He finished the play before the Odd Couple run ended, but he talked often about how he almost lost what he'd written when a castmate absentmindedly left the script on top of the rental car they were driving to the airport for their return trip to New York. Retracing the route they'd taken from the motel to the airport, they found and gathered up the pages that had been scattered all along the side of the road. The play told the story of four members of a high school basketball team in a Scranton-like town gathering for their annual reunion with their beloved but demanding coach to relive the glory days of their 1952 state championship. But this time out, they end up wrestling with the disappointments they face as middle-aged men in a changing America. George, kind of a class clown, has become the mayor of their town, but is now in a close race for a new term and willing to compromise anything to win. James, the most responsible of the group, is a high school principal, but feels that he's never gotten the chance to live up to his true potential. His brother Tom is an alcoholic who goads the others to confront the people they've actually become. Only the alpha male Phil, who inherited a going business from his father, revels in the power that his wealth and a disregard for the feelings of others can bring. For a while, some commercial producers toyed with the idea of doing that championship season on Broadway. But after pushing Miller to make the characters more likable, they decided that they didn't like the play with the more likable characters in it. Luckily for Miller, the director A.J. Antoon, whom he knew from hanging around at the public theater, read the original version and he liked it. He helped Miller lobby the public's Joe Papp to put on a reading of the play at the public. The reading went so well that Papp agreed to do a full production, but he insisted that finding the right actor to play the coach was crucial. The trick was that they needed someone who could convey the kind of mid-century authority that commanded respect, but who was also confident enough to fit into what was essentially an ensemble piece. They reached out to George C. Scott, but his agent never got back to them. They then turned to E.G. Marshall, but he wanted top billing, and that was a no-no. Next, they asked Jack Warden, but he turned them down because he had just been cast in his dream role of Willie Loman in a Chicago production of Death of a Salesman. Then Antoon and Miller remembered Richard Dysart, who had appeared with Scott and Marshall in the 1960 revival of Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. Dysart said yes. Three of the actors playing the team members, Charles Durning, Walter McGinn, and Michael McGuire, 
were downtown theater regulars who had done the reading and were happy to stay on for the full production. But the actor who played the character Phil had another gig, and so Antune and Miller reached out to Paul Servino. Servino hadn't done much theater, but he was making a name for himself in small but showy roles in movies like Where's Papa and The Panic in Needle Park, and he seemed to have just the right quality that the role needed. Servino would later say that he felt he'd outgrown off-Broadway theater at that point in his career, but after reading the script, he told his wife that if he did the play, it would make him a star. And it pretty much did, earning Servino a Tony nomination for Best Actor in a Play when the show moved to Broadway. But getting there wasn't easy. Servino later admitted that he had been a bit arrogant during rehearsals, but he said that was only because he felt so sure of how to do the role. The others admitted just hating him. At one point, Dysart even went to Pap and gave him an ultimatum, me or him. Pap told him to go back to work. The actors were also condescending toward their director, Antoon, who was only 28 at the time and younger than all of them. They sometimes refused to take his notes until Pap signed off on them. And yet somehow... They made it through, and that championship season opened at the Public Theater on May 2, 1972. It instantly became such a hot ticket that Pap decided to move it to Broadway, where it opened on September 14th and then ran for 700 performances. It was named Best Play by the Drama Desk, the New York Drama Critics Circle, and the Outer Critics Circle. And the three-man Pulitzer jury made the play its unanimous choice, too. Hollywood was also hot to do a film version, but all of the producers out there wanted big changes, like turning the women, only mentioned in the play, into full characters, or even moving the location from Scranton. Miller refused all those suggestions, Finally, the small indie company Canon Films offered to put up the money and even encouraged Miller to direct the film himself. The movie came out in 1982. Reviews were respectable, but according to the website The Numbers, it did only about $40,000 at the box office. Yes, you heard that right, $40,000. And that was the same year that E.T. took in $314 million. And even a small film like Tootsie took in $31 million. The play hasn't done well when it's been revived either. People just aren't as comfortable with its misogynistic attitude and its liberal use of racial and ethnic slurs. A 1999 revival at Second Stage played for just 14 performances, and a star-studded Broadway revival in 2011 with a pre-succession Brian Cox as the coach, Jim Gaffigan, Kiefer Sutherland, Chris Noth, and Miller's son Jason Patrick as the team members lasted only 97 performances and failed to pick up 
any Tony nominations. Miller's acting career didn't wear well either. He was reportedly offered the lead in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, but he turned it down to do another film called The Nickel Ride. It was about a middle-aged mob enforcer trying to navigate between threats from both rival gangsters and the cops. It got decent reviews, but it obviously didn't do as well as Taxi Driver did. For the next three decades, Miller appeared mainly in small roles on TV and in B-movies, including Exorcist III. And he didn't have any new plays produced in New York. Most of his post-championship season career was devoted to serving as artistic director of the Scranton Public Theater, where he directed and starred in shows from 1982 through 1998. He died on May 13, 2001, from a heart attack at the age of just 62. A few years later, the city of Scranton commissioned a bronze bust of Miller that was created by Paul Servino, who had developed a side career as a sculptor. Joining me to talk about Jason Miller and that championship season is Miller's good friend, Bob Schlesinger, the founder and executive director of the Scranton Public Theater. Hello, Bob Schlesinger. Welcome to All the Drama. Hello. Before we start talking about the play that championship season, could you tell us a little bit about how you first met Jason Miller? Well, you know, we go way back. I mean, it's been 22 years since Jason passed away. Yeah. Jason and I met because I became a, a, a huge fan of the movie, The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. I went to the University of Scranton, mm-hmm. and somebody gave me a copy of that championship season because I was interested in the theater at the time. So I read the play and went, oh, my God, this play is, is great. And I said, I got to meet this guy. He says, you know, he's from Scranton. He's from West Scranton. I went, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> so coincidentally, one day I saw him on the street and I ran over to him. I said, listen, I have to introduce myself to you. And we got talking and I told him about championship season. I said to him, I'm in the process of starting a theater. And I would wonder at some point down the road if you would be interested in maybe coming to Scranton to help us raise a little money and or do a play with us. And he said, let's just stay in touch. So anyway, we stayed in touch off and on for a while. And then in 1982, I started the theater in 1978, the Scranton Public Theater. And... I said to him, all of a sudden, I call him on the phone and said, listen, I have a, a company going. It's five years in the in the works. And I'd like you to, you know, when you're, when you're in town, I'd like to get together. And he said, sure. He says, but you know what? We're filming a movie that championship season. And he said, we're going to be coming to Scranton to film it. I went, I said, really? So... Bottom line was, he said, I'm going to need a front man to help 
put the film together. And I said, well, I can do that. I mean, I'm very familiar with what's going on here. And, you know, I have a, a theater space that you kind of operate out of. That's really how we became, how we initially got to know one another. Later on in 1987, uh, he came back to town to help his ailing parents. And we started what is called the Pennsylvania Summer Theater Festival, which ran for 22 years until a natural disaster destroyed it. Hmm. But in the meantime, we became good friends, and we did many, many, many projects together. Now, you said that when you read that championship season for the first time, it knocked you out. What so knocked you out about it? I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> Not a, it was very funny, but it was like a dark comedy in many respects. And he captured the essence of his hometown from the political point of view, from the business point of view, and from the character development point of view. This is Scranton, uh, the Northeast Pennsylvania area was, is, is like New York was, a melting pot for many different ethnic groups. And coal mining was the number one industry at the time. And for many, many years it was. And so a lot of Jason's plays, championship season, some of his one-act plays, his play, Nobody Hears a Broken Drum, was based on the, the history of the coal, the anthracite coal. In some ways, the play is really sort of prescient about the changes that have happened, are happening to industrial cities around the country? It's still plays. Not too long ago, I talked to his son, Jason Patrick. Mm-hmm. You know, he owns the rights to the play now. And I said, you know, if we upgraded this play, just changed it a little bit, I truly believe it would have pertinence today. Now, it's, you know, politically incorrect play. Have you ever read it? Yep, read it, seen it, yep. Oh, okay. Who'd you see it with? I saw it with Jason, Patrick. Okay. The last okay. Broadway Be- production. All right, between you and me, that was, it was all right. It wasn't what it, as good as it could have been. Earlier, I think it was the second stage in New York, did it as a tribute to the 25th anniversary, or the 20th anniversary, one of those. So Jason and I went down and saw it. And as it turned out, I said, what'd you think afterwards? He goes, well, I'll give it a C, Bob. But I, I ended up doing a production at the Pennsylvania Summer Theater Festival, kick off the uh, 1987 to kick it off with Jason as the coach. Jason is still, today, is the best coach I ever saw. Hmm. And, well, he wrote it, you know. And so he knew instinctively how to play the coach. And the, the characters in the play really represent what Northeastern Pennsylvania is. And like you said earlier, the industrial development of the country. I mean, this, this area is tough. A lot of the ethnic groups from the Irish to the Italians to the Polish and the Slovaks who moved in here, they, were, they all brought their customs. And Jason, of course, growing up here, 
knew how to write about it. And so anyway, to make a long story short, we we produced the play here and it was very well received. Well, I've seen I've seen productions that are not good. I've seen them butcher the play. How? Because it's a tough play to, for actors to act. You really need a good director. And the one that I think it was, I forget who directed the, the one with Jason Patrick, who was more of a musical director. And he came to town to talk to Jason and all that kind of stuff. I said, listen, just remember, this play is an ensemble piece of theater. There's no stars. The, the one flaw in the show, if you really wanted to analyze it, is that you have to have a good coach. If you don't have a good coach, then the play can not be the power it could be. So that's a prerequisite. Now, that's not to say you don't need five good actors. You do. But if you don't have the coach, a Vince Lombardi type, I don't know if you know who he was, but you needed a Vince Lombardi type. And here's an interesting sidebar. When the movie was made, originally George C. Scott was to play the coach. But George C. Scott wanted to have some script. How should I say it? Yeah, he wanted to he wanted to be have the ability to change the script. And Jason said, No, this is my play and I want to be able to have artistic charge of it. So they disagreed. And so finally, I don't know, William Friedkin, who was directed The Exorcist and who just recently passed away, said, well, I'm not going to get into any, any artistic disagreements here, especially if they're, they, they could become volatile. And both Jason and George C. Scott, you know, they, could, they had some testosterone working for themselves, you know? <laughs> and, and so he, George C. Scott dropped out. And so the next coach was going to be William Holden. And he, he got drunk one night, fell down the stairs and died. That scared Friedkin off because Friedman, Friedkin, you know, it was a superstitious guy. I mean, he directed The Exorcist. And so anyway, make a long story short, Jason was stuck without a coach. And so finally, there was a, film company called Canon Films, which was Yoram Globus and Menachem Golem were the major producers of that company. They wanted to do a quote-unquote artsy film, and Championship Season was chosen. Well, they called him up on the phone, that is, uh, Canon called Jason, and so we want to do the film the play. And he was going, well, great. Mm -hmm. And there's one catch. You have to have Robert Mitchum, who we have under contract, to do the coach. And so, of course, Jason, at this point in time, wanted to get the film made. Yeah. And he agreed to it. Well, you know, and I was a fan of Mitchum's at the time, but I still am. But I, I, I think he kind of slept walk through the film as the coach. So that, you know, it just didn't, it had tremendous press when it first came out because it had Martin Sheen and it had Stacey Keach, 
who was at the height of his popularity at the time with Mike Hammer, Paul Servino, and who else was in that? Oh, and Bruce Dern. So he had an all-star cast, but Mitchum just didn't play the coach the way the coach needs to be played. And so anyway, the film kind of fell off. You know, I think it made its money back, but pretty much fell by the wayside. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up just a little bit and ask you a question I ask in each of these episodes. What do you think made the Pulitzer Board recognize this particular play at that particular time? Well, from what I understand, the Pulitzer Prize is given to plays that address issues that deal with human interaction and particularly as a a family and, you know, a, a basketball team or any sports team for that matter has to be a family if you want to be successful. Do you have a, a sense of what winning the Pulitzer meant to him? Some some writers feel it's a burden because they've got to live up to it. Some are just really happy because it recognizes the work they've done. Do you know how he felt about it? Well, he got it. He got the prize in the mail. There, there wasn't any, you know, formal presentation. He got the, the certificate or whatever in the mail along with a check. And he just, he thought that was because of the Tony Award, you know, when he got the Tony Award, you know, that was all formal. He went down to New York and, and, and got the Tony. And the New York Outer Critics Award, too. It won the Triple Crown, really, of the American theater. And anyway, he, yeah, he... I'm I'm losing track of the question here. What did the Pulitzer mean to him? Okay. I think he was thrilled he had it. He could use it as what he would call a trinket to, you know, hang on his resume and everything else like that. But, you know, Jason was just a very talented writer and actor. And I think his real gift was his writing. He, he, He could write. And so anyway, I think, what it meant to him was it was a feather in the cap. His only problem was he tried to top the play. And I said, man, if you write another play, you'll go down as one of the greatest playwrights in the history of the American theater. And I think he tried to do that, and he came up short. He just couldn't come back to you know that type of character development in a two-hour piece of theater. Do you think he had then any regrets? 1973 was such a pivotal year for him. He has this play, he wins the Pulitzer, he's in The Exorcist, he's nominated for an Oscar, but then he returns home, you say, to at first to care for his parents, but he then makes his home there in Scranton, in your theater, was that satisfying for him? Did he? Have- you know, I don't know if you're aware of Jason's reputation. Jason liked to go out on the town. And, you know, Scranton is well known for drinkers. And so I think the lure and everybody in, 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 in town, I mean, he could get away with murder here. And, you know, so I think that lure 
And I told him, I said, if you're the artistic director, you know, if you agree to do that, you have to do one play a year with us, either direct or you act in it. And then after that, after you do that, you can do anything you want in uh, your career. And he agreed to do that. So we did a bunch of plays together, championship season being one of them. And we did a major production of his play, Nobody Hears a Broken Drum, which was about the early Molly Maguires in the in the in the coal fields up here. And you know, there's a there's a big huge theater in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania called the Kirby Center for the Arts, the FM Kirby Center for the Arts. And we did a big production of uh Nobody Hears a Broken Drum there. It's a big cast. It's an epic type of thing, and you couldn't do it on a in a small stage. It just wouldn't play out. But this was a big stage, and we built a huge set. And, and he said to me, "Bob, this is the best production of my play I've ever seen in my life." And I went, "Well, we had all the amenities working for us. We had a big stage. We had good actors doing the show, and the way we presented it." was exceptionally well done and we had big crowds coming to see it so it wasn't something that could transfer easily to like a broadway no no not like when we did inherit the wind we started it up here and then we took it to philly and we ran for six months in philly with jason as the henry drummond role and a well-known new york personality malachi mccourt oh sure playing the William Jennings Bryan part. And it, it was, in, in, in my opinion, it was an exceptional production. You know, I'm biased because I directed <laughs> the play, but, but, but it was. I mean, it ran for six months in Philly and became known as the best play of the year amongst the Philadelphia drama critics. Now, let me ask you this. You said Jason could get away with anything in Scranton. And I... I I don't want to say he was a god, but he was close. Well, I'm going to say, I guess a few years ago, uh, you guys put up a statue um, to him. And not many playwrights get statues of themselves erected in their... That's interesting you brought that up, because have you ever seen the statue... Paul Servino did it, but it's not very good. And, you know, I'm not trying to sound like a cynic or anything else like that, but it's it's all right. You know, he looks gaunt. In the, and it's a bust, really. It's not a statue. It's a bust. But it's right down there on Courthouse Square in Scranton. You know, I don't want to have any negative context here. Jason was loved in this town. Well... Thank you for, for, for sharing your thoughts and, and your memories about your, your colleague and your friend and always a Pulitzer winner, Jason Miller. Thank you so much, Bob, for sharing this little bit of him with us. All right. All the best to you. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time. And if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send them to me at jan at broadwayradio.com.